In 2003, a couple was gunned down in their own home. Three suspects emerged early on, but the investigators would soon focus on one of them. But would the other two alternative suspects be enough for reasonable doubt? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back. If you are new, please remember to check out the YouTube channel if you haven't already. I don't promise a ton of wow factor on the videos, but I am trying to improve the quality to make them more interesting to watch with clips and video and pictures rather than just having a slideshow next to my talking head. But you can check it out after you finish listening to this episode. So let's get into this week's case. I want to thank my friend Jess for her help with this episode. I started working on it and she had already done research on it that she sent over to kind of help me out. So a huge thank you to her. I don't think I've done an Idaho case on crime lines other than the Vallow Daybell case. This story takes place in a different part of the state in Bellevue, Idaho, which is a really nice little town with good schools located halfway between Boise and Idaho Falls. Living in this lovely little town in 2003 was the Johnson family. When Alan and Diane Johnson married in 1983, Diane already had a son from a previous relationship named Matt, and Alan adopted him. They then had a daughter, Sarah, born in 1987. Alan co-owned a landscaping business. Diane worked for a collections firm. Matt was away at college, and 16-year-old Sarah was a high schooler who loved volleyball and was a bit on the rebellious side. It was all pretty typical stuff until the Tuesday after Labor Day in 2003. That was September 2nd for anyone who doesn't have their 2003 U.S. holiday calendar on hand. Alan got up for work a bit before 6.30, as usual, and got into the shower. Soon after this, shots rang out from the home, and the Johnsons' daughter, Sarah, ran from the house screaming. She banged on a neighbor's door and said her parents had just been shot. Sarah hadn't exactly seen a shooter or even her parents, but rather she heard the shots come from her parents' room across the hall while she was in bed, and she put the pieces together. In fear, she just took off running without looking back. By the time the police arrived and cleared the house, the shooter was long gone. In the main bedroom of the house, they found 52-year-old Diane in bed, shot once in the head. The blast had been so powerful that there was blood spatter everywhere, including out in the hallway and into Sarah's room, which was directly across the hall. 46-year-old Alan was found closer to the bathroom, dead from a bullet wound to the chest. The shower was still running and Alan was wet, yet he was found outside of the shower stall. The investigators concluded that Diane was shot first, very likely in her sleep, and Alan left the shower after hearing the shot. The gunman then turned on him. Alan stumbled a step or two before collapsing. 
at the scene were multiple weapons, including the murder weapon and two large knives. The knives stood out because they were at the foot of the bed. However, they hadn't been used in the crime in any way. Only the gun was. The knives being there gave the impression multiple people were in the room because no one could carry the murder weapon, which was a Winchester rifle, and two large knives at the same time. That said, the placement seemed a little odd. The knives looked like they had been placed at the foot of the bed, laying tip to tip, not just haphazardly dropped at the scene. A third knife was found on the bed in the guest room. And another weapon was found. This one was in the garage. It was a 22, and it was just laying on the chest freezer. And in the garage apartment that the family rented out, the scope to the murder weapon was found. It was lying on the bed. The person renting this apartment was a man named Mel Spiegel, and Mel was nowhere to be found. While the police went looking for him at the scene, they asked Sarah what happened in more detail. As the only other person in the house at the time, anything she could tell them would have been helpful. Sarah said that she was in her bedroom sleeping and went to her parents' door after hearing at least one of the shots. She called out to them through their closed door, but no one answered and she ran for help. And that's about all she could tell the police. But this actually said a lot because we're at our first contradiction with the evidence. Sarah said her parents' door was closed immediately after she heard a shot fired. But we know the door was open when Diane was shot, since blood and tissue were found in the hallway and all the way into Sarah's room. The door couldn't have been closed unless the killer shot Diane with it open, then closed it before Sarah made it to the hallway. Sarah did not mention that she heard a door shut, but the trauma of the situation and having just heard a gunshot may mean she genuinely didn't process the sound of a door being closed or slammed. Perhaps she even thought it was another gunshot. While the investigators were still at the scene, family began gathering outside the house, including Diane and Alan's older son, Matt, who rushed to get there to be with Sarah. He was in school in northern Idaho, so it did take him several hours to drive home. He got there around three in the afternoon. When Matt arrived, Sarah looked at him and said, they think I did it. Matt was surprised she said this and said to her, surely they were looking for a different suspect. They were surely going to be looking at Bruno Santos. But Sarah said it couldn't have been Bruno since Alan loved Bruno like a son. Bruno never would have done this to them. But that was a straight up lie and Matt knew it. Matt knew there was nothing except bad blood between his parents and Bruno. So let's go ahead and back up and talk about Bruno Santos because he is really key to understanding this case. Bruno was a 19-year-old high school dropout with a drug history and multiple arrests, and 16-year-old Sarah Johnson was in love with him. 
They started dating earlier that summer, and Sarah managed to keep it a secret from her parents for a little while, but they eventually found out that their daughter was dating an older man who had legal entanglements, and they were not pleased, to say the least. They told Sarah she was not allowed to date Bruno, which went over about as well as you would think it did. She was still seeing him, only more quietly, but in the middle of August, she asked her parents if Bruno could be her date to a family wedding. Obviously, they said no way. Sarah continued to see Bruno for the next few weeks behind her parents' backs, even telling friends that she and Bruno had gotten engaged after three whole months of dating. Sarah's friends thought that While Sarah was a kind and loving person, she wasn't exactly known for her honesty. She liked to tell tales. So her friends were on the fence over whether they believed her about this engagement or if she was just telling yet another fish story. On August 29th, 2003, which is just days before this double murder, Sarah told her parents she was sleeping at a friend's house, but guess what? She was really sleeping over at Bruno's apartment that he shared with his mother and some other family members. The problem was, well, the problem from Sarah's point of view, the problem was that her parents found out the next morning. So her dad and uncle drove to Bruno's apartment to bring her back home. Sarah's uncle said she looked pretty embarrassed when she saw him there. We know what transpired next because Sarah's aunt and uncle were actually at the house that weekend while Alan and Diane talked about what they should do and then gave Sarah the consequence for her sneaking around. There was quite a bit of defiance coming from Sarah during this process, so her parents decided to both ground her and take away her driving privileges. She couldn't even drive to school, which would also keep her from heading off to go see Bruno while her parents were at work. And since Bruno wasn't allowed over to the house, this would prevent them from seeing each other or at least make it really hard. The thing with this relationship wasn't that Sarah was dating someone they didn't like or didn't approve of. She was a 16-year-old dating an adult with a criminal record who used drugs. They were trying to keep her safe, not just trying to keep her from true love with someone they didn't care for. And because this was more than a dislike and more of an actual safety issue, Alan and Diane discussed another option. They considered going to the police to turn Bruno Santos in for statutory rape. Statutory rape is non-forced sex between two parties where one of them is below the age of consent. The age of consent varies from state to state, ranging from 16 to 18 years old. Some states have other factors they consider, like the age difference between the parties. For Bruno Santos, he was on the wrong side of Idaho's law because of the age difference. The age of consent in Idaho is 18, but they will not prosecute a statutory rape case if the victim is 16 or 17 years old, unless the defendant is three or more years older, and Bruno was three years older than Sarah. 
So with this punishment and fear Bruno would go to jail, Sarah was very angry over this weekend, and she spent a lot of time alone claiming to be studying, but she was most likely pouting. On September 1st, the day before the murders, Diane Johnson talked to her son Matt on the phone and told him about the situation with Bruno and how Sarah was acting out. She was very upset about it. So Matt knew that his father didn't view Bruno like a son, which is what Sarah was trying to claim now that Matt suggested him as a suspect. But Sarah had to have known that Bruno would have been a suspect. Being turned in for a statutory rape wasn't all Bruno was facing. He was no longer permitted to be in the United States. An arrest at this point would likely have seen him deported. So Sarah knew she was a suspect and she knew Bruno was a suspect. But there was a third suspect, Mel, the tenant. After all, it was his gun used in the crime and he was gone. So these three suspects all needed to be investigated. Mel was pretty quickly ruled out. He was found two hours away in Boise, somewhere he had been four days and planned to stay for a few more days. And there were people in Boise who could vouch for him being there the entire time. The murder weapon was his rifle, but Mel said it wasn't secure in the apartment. He left it in a closet that anyone could have accessed. But who would know a gun was in the apartment to go looking for it? Sarah surely knew, but Mel was a hunter, and so it's likely many others around town knew as well. But then finding someone who knew the gun was there and had a motive to kill the Johnsons made for a much shorter list. The focus really landed on Sarah and Bruno. This wasn't necessarily an either-or situation. It seemed more likely, initially at least, to have been an and situation, with both of them in on it together. So they had to be investigated separately as individual actors but also together as a possible conspiracy. The story Sarah told the police had that one inconsistency in it about the door being closed. But something Sarah told her brother Matt when he arrived also didn't make sense to him, not just the Bruno Santos thing. Sarah said that Alan and Diane heard something in their yard around 2 a.m. when they were already in bed. They both got up to check it out because they suspected it was a prowler. They didn't find anything and headed back inside to go to bed. This is one of those things a police officer would jot down and accept, but someone who knew the Johnsons, like their son, would see the red flags in the story. The Johnsons lived on acreage in a partly suburban, partly rural area. They had heard things outside the house before, and Alan would take the dog to go look around. And if he suspected an actual prowler and not just wildlife, the police would have been called. The thing he wouldn't have done would be to have Diane come outside with him. Alan was the protective husband type and would have insisted she stay inside. So that stuck in Matt's mind a bit. Between this and the comment about Alan really liking Bruno, things weren't adding up. But... Matt was 22, his parents were dead, he had a sister who was a minor suddenly orphaned, and he had more on his plate 
than trying to process Sarah's tall tales and what they meant in context. He certainly didn't immediately think his 16-year-old little sister would have had anything to do with this violent crime. Because Matt was still a college student, Sarah immediately moved in to live with her aunt and uncle, Diane's sister Linda and her husband Jim. This Uncle Jim was the same one who went to Bruno's apartment to take her home. And speaking of Bruno's apartment, because that was a well-written segue, the police went over there to interview him, of course, and he cooperated at first, but he was characterized as rude and cocky as the questioning continued. But he did cooperate in providing DNA samples for comparison to the crime scene. And they did find Bruno's DNA in the home. It was in Sarah's bed. So all that really told them was that she had snuck Bruno into her room and they had sex at some point. But it also told them that Bruno had been in the home where he wasn't allowed to be, so he may have known the house's layout. Who's to say Sarah didn't also sneak him into Mel's apartment to show him where the gun was? So the police took Bruno's clothing and sent it for processing where they found no evidence of blood or the Johnson's DNA on it. They also didn't find Bruno's prints anywhere in the house. According to Bruno's mother, he was home all night, but mothers are not the most neutral source for an alibi for their child. The police couldn't disprove the alibi, and they couldn't tie him to the crime scene, but suspicion of him remained. And as the investigation continued, Sarah's aunt Linda was starting to develop her own suspicions. She was watching her 16-year-old niece experience the oddest processing of grief she had ever seen, as in Linda saw nothing. Sarah carried on like nothing happened, even acting almost inconvenienced by other people's grief. For instance, the police had cut Sarah's fingernails when they did evidence collection. And Sarah's concern was going to the salon to get them fixed so they would look nice. The day after her parents died, she went to a volleyball game and brushed off people's condolences. She seemed more concerned with getting a message to Bruno, who she was now doubly forbidden from seeing. And then at the funeral, nine days after the murders, Sarah was observed rolling her eyes at mourners who were crying. This level of detachment could have been part of Sarah's grief process. It could have been something she actually needed intervention with, psychiatric help, because she was detaching from her reality to the point that she wasn't processing the weight of what had happened. She wasn't accepting that her parents were dead and what that meant. But Sarah could also have genuinely not been upset her parents were dead because it was what she wanted. And that possibility was what weighed on her aunt. In a conversation with police on September 14th, less than two weeks after the murders, Linda told them about Sarah's behavior. What Linda didn't know, what the police were holding back as they investigated, was that Sarah was emerging as the prime suspect 
not only ahead of Bruno Santos, but instead of him. And that was because of some evidence they found at the house. The morning of the murders just so happened to be trash day in the Johnson's neighborhood, which would have been pretty convenient timing for the killer because they had put some evidence in the trash. However, the police had blocked the street off. They stopped the truck from coming up to the Johnsons' house and taking away their garbage. It really looks like the killer expected the trash to be hauled off that day, but bad luck for them. Inside the garbage, the police found a pink bathrobe that had bullets in the pocket. They also found a latex glove and a leather glove. The ammo ended up not being the same type used in the murder, so they were less interested in that than they were with the other items. And they were able to link the items to Sarah in three ways. First, Sarah admitted the bathrobe was hers. She showed them where it usually hung up in the bathroom. Second, the leather glove was one that Diane usually kept in her vehicle, yet they found the mate to it in Sarah's room. And third, there was packaging from a pregnancy test in the same trash bin. It wasn't Alan's, and it was very, very, very unlikely to be Diane's as she was in her 50s. It seemed this all came from Sarah. The gloves and the bathrobe were taken into evidence and tested. Though the bathrobe didn't initially seem to be covered in blood, testing did show tiny specks of high-velocity blood spatter almost exclusively on the back of the robe. This seemed odd because it was as though someone, possibly Sarah, was standing close to the shooting, but with her back turned when the shots were fired. This would indicate someone else was there with her since you can't shoot this type of rifle accurately behind your back. However, another theory emerged. What if the robe was worn backwards? What if the shooter knew they would get blood on their clothes and decided to wear the robe as a smock? They noted that Sarah was a fan of police procedurals and true crime, and that's the type of person who would think about forensic countermeasures like this. You can admit it, we are amongst friends. You've watched a snapped episode or a forensic files and critiqued how the person got caught. I know you've done it because so have I. And the police were thinking, so did Sarah. The gloves would have also been a forensic countermeasure, avoiding leaving fingerprints. So they swabbed the inside of the gloves to see if they could get any DNA, and Sarah's DNA was found inside the latex glove. But what the investigators didn't find was any blood on Sarah or her pajamas, none at all. They luminaled her shirt from the collar to the hem, they luminaled her pants from the waist to the hem, and they found nothing. So if this was Sarah and she did wear the bathrobe backwards, it worked 100%. The bathrobe blocked all the blood spatter. While the bathrobe did belong to Sarah, it was hanging in the bathroom out in the open and anyone could have grabbed it. But you have to wonder why would they have? 
The police needed to prove that Sarah wore that bathrobe that morning, and it wouldn't be easy to draw that clear of a conclusion. They did get a little break when they noticed that the t-shirt Sarah wore had paint on it. The paint was old and dried, and the shirt was probably run through the wash a few times. It's the kind of rag shirt that you keep around to wear to bed or around the house. Those little dry paint specks ended up being wrapped up with the lint on the shirt on a microscopic level. So they analyzed the inside of the robe and they found particles that matched what was on the shirt. So Sarah wore that shirt while wearing that bathrobe, and it was most likely after the last time the bathrobe had been washed. But it doesn't mean she was the one wearing it when her parents were shot. However, they had her DNA inside that latex glove, which was found with the bathrobe, and the mate of the leather glove that was also found with the bathrobe was in Sarah's room. It was the combination of things that made the police believe Sarah was likely the actual shooter. She hadn't gotten her boyfriend to do it for her. So now we have the robe and the gloves, which would have covered a lot of Sarah's person. But what about her face and her hair? The blowback would have certainly gotten something on her. Of course, Sarah could have washed and dried her face before running to the neighbor, but not her long hair, and it wasn't wet when the police responded to the scene. The answer came a couple of weeks after the murder. A plumber was called out to the house to deal with a clogged toilet. When he snaked it, he pulled out a shower cap. The cap had been sitting in water for a few weeks at this point, so there was no blood on it. But why flush a shower cap unless you have to get rid of it quickly? This seemed to be the last piece to explain why no blood was found on Sarah. But what about Bruno Santos and his role in this? He did have a motive. He was facing charges, which would have meant prison and or deportation. He knew the basic layout of the house since he had been there with Sarah in the past. But... There was no forensic evidence tying him to the scene, but there was still a question about what he knew ahead of time. Unless Sarah said something explaining Bruno's role, it didn't seem like they would ever know for sure. But Sarah's role was coming into clear focus for investigators. She had a motive, and there was forensic evidence tying her to the crime. Of course, she lived in the home, which made some of the evidence up for debate. Like the robe, Sarah could have worn that shirt and robe combination at a time other than when the shooting happened. But when you take all of the evidence on the whole, the state believed they had a case against Sarah Johnson. On Wednesday, October 29th, 2003, just under two months after the murders, Sarah was arrested and charged for the murders of her parents. Because of the severity of the crime, she was charged as an adult, even though she was just 16. I am not going to go the rounds on the debate over charging minors as adults. I have gone back and forth on it myself. It's a one-person debate in my head. 
Not so much with 14-year-olds. I have a pretty strong stance there. But yeah, when we're talking 16 and 17-year-olds, I see room for both arguments. But I can't help but notice, in this case specifically, they could have sent a 19-year-old to actual prison over statutory rape because Sarah wasn't old enough to consent to sex. But now they're telling me she was old enough to form adult-level intent to kill her parents. Too immature to decide to have sex, definitely mature enough to form intent to kill. Because Sarah was charged as an adult and this was 2003, she could have faced the death penalty. Bruno Santos couldn't have sex with her because she was too young, but the state could sentence her to die because she was old enough. I don't really know what side I'm actually even arguing here. I'm not really arguing any of it. I'm just pointing out what I see as contradictory stances within the law. Though the law on juvenile death penalty cases has since changed, a year and a half after the murders of Diane and Alan Johnson, the Supreme Court ruled in Roper v. Simmons that the death penalty for minors was unconstitutional. But in Sarah's case, the state ended up not even pursuing it. The prosecuting attorney said justice could be served without it. The Roper decision was handed down pretty much smack in the middle of Sarah Johnson's trial, so I imagine it would have been an interesting situation for the state had they been working a death penalty case halfway through having to tell the jury, never mind. So anyway, when the trial occurred in the spring of 2005, it was moved to another county because so many people knew Alan and Diane, and even those who didn't know them thought Sarah was guilty. Once you add in the people who had other valid reasons why they couldn't serve on the jury, 75% of the prospective jurors didn't even make it out of voir dire. Once you hit numbers like that, there is really no choice but to move the trial. When the state presented their evidence against Sarah, they presented a theory that grabbed as much of the evidence as possible and fitted into the narrative. They said that Sarah had removed the rifle belonging to Mel from the apartment at some point before the murders. She knew it was there because she occasionally cleaned for him. It's possible Sarah had hidden it in her room for a couple of days, though I personally think she got it that morning or the night before. The reason I think this is that the other gun was also taken from the closet. It was a twenty-two rifle that was left on the chest freezer in the garage. It wasn't used in the murders, but it's safe to assume both guns were taken at the same time, and Sarah's parents would have noticed a gun on the freezer in the garage had it been taken out earlier. After getting the gun, Sarah covered herself with the robe, shower cap, and gloves before sneaking into her parents' room and shooting her mother. They said she then killed her father from about three feet away as he tried to get to Diane. Sarah then cleaned herself up a bit, flushing the shower cap and taking off the robe and gloves. She placed two knives in the room and one in the guest room, according to the prosecutors, to make it look like more than one person was involved, something like a gang-style killing. She dumped the robe and the gloves in the trash on her way to scream for help at the neighbors. The state pointed to some inconsistencies in the various stories Sarah had told the police. 
She said the gunshot woke her up one time, and another time she said it was the shower turning on that woke her up. She said both bedroom doors were closed, then it was just her parents' door, but it's impossible for any of the doors to be shut due to the blood evidence spraying into Sarah's room. The state presented a two-part motive. First, Sarah wanted to be with Bruno, and her parents refused to allow it. Second, to be able to accomplish the first thing, she would need money. Her dream was to leave her parents and live with Bruno. Ellen and Diane were not about to let that happen, and Sarah and Bruno couldn't afford to make it happen. Bruno lived in a small apartment in a low-income housing unit with his mother and other relatives. He couldn't afford a place on his own, and Sarah was still in high school. But with her parents dead, Sarah would have inherited half of everything, which included $300,000 of her share of their life insurance. But even if she didn't know about the life insurance, which is certainly possible since she was 16, she did know her parents had a nice house and a comfortable living situation. She knew she would have inherited something of value and then would have been able to ride off into the sunset with Bruno. Except none of that happened for her. Guardianship was given to her aunt and uncle, who were also not about to let her see Bruno. The life insurance wouldn't pay out until the case was resolved, to some degree, and probate takes a while, so she had no access to her inheritance. Plus, the investigation into this case made the police look into Bruno, and immigration enforcement took over when they learned he wasn't legally permitted to live in the United States. It wasn't long before he was deported and Sarah was arrested. But Bruno did come back to Idaho to testify against Sarah. He was pretty important to the prosecution's case because he was the most likely alternative suspect for the defense to use. So putting him in front of the jury and having him deny his involvement was pretty important to the prosecution. Bruno said he wanted to testify so he could clear his name. Bruno said he had no role in the murders, and he didn't know Sarah had even planned ahead of time to commit them. But Sarah had said some things to him that he didn't think too much about at the time, but in hindsight seemed suspicious. Like the time shortly before the murders, when Sarah asked him if he wanted to live in a beautiful home. Looking back, Sarah could have been referring to the beautiful home she anticipated she was going to inherit. Bruno also said Sarah talked about hating her parents and made a comment about shooting her father, which he took to just be venting until, obviously, someone shot her father. Sarah's brother, Matt, also testified for the prosecution. He said he loved his sister, but he saw her as someone who was a bit of a drama queen and willing to lie when it benefited her. He also testified about the tension in the home as Sarah grew more rebellious. Matt told the jury about how he talked to Sarah the day before the murders. She told him about having been punished by having her car taken away. But she told him she understood what their parents were trying to do. Matt didn't think this added up because Sarah was always 
the one who had to be right. She was unwilling to admit where she was wrong, but here she was sounding very understanding of the punishment that had been handed down. It was odd enough to Matt that he intended to talk to his mom about it later because it seemed like such a big shift in her demeanor. The insinuation here is that Sarah was accepting of the consequence because she knew her parents would be dead soon and it would be moot. On cross-examination, the defense asked Matt about the inheritance he would get if Sarah was convicted. And Matt said, yes, he would collect all of it himself. They weren't implying that Matt was the real killer, just that he had a motive to testify about Sarah in the least favorable light, because if she went to prison for life, he would get everything. But Matt said he was just there to testify for his parents, to advocate for them, and not for a selfish reason. The state then had jailhouse informants testify, and I always rate that testimony as low in credibility unless they have something backing it up. It's not that I don't believe them because they're criminals or alleged criminals. That's often used in court to discredit people, but I don't think criminal records make you a liar. What I think makes you a liar is having an incentive to lie. Even if you don't cut a direct deal, you have to hold out hope that the prosecution is going to look favorably on you for being helpful. Just like the defense did with Matt, we have to look at the possible incentives for testifying in a certain way. The jailhouse testimony, though, was not that damning. It was mostly that Sarah would slip up when talking about the murders. One time she said something like, when I kill and then corrected it to when the killers did something. But all of the informants had to admit that Sarah didn't actually ever confess to them. She mostly talked about her relationships with her family members and her upset that Matt wouldn't bail her out, even though he could have. Now, the defense focused on two main things. One was the complete lack of blood on Sarah, To them, it proved she didn't do it. It's not like the state said she was wearing a hazmat suit at the time. I even noticed in pictures from the trial that when the expert demonstrated how the robe was worn and he was holding the gun up, the robe slipped. His tie and collar were exposed. I'm not sure his size was comparable to Sarah's. I imagine it wasn't. So it could have just been related to the fit, but I would have liked to see a demonstration with someone confirmed to be the size and basic body type of Sarah Johnson. You know, OJ trying on the glove. Let's get Sarah to try on this robe in court so we can see. But that didn't happen. So the defense also argued the second point, which was there were other suspects. Bruno Santos was one. A former cleaning lady for the Johnsons who had been fired was brought up, and they were used to raise reasonable doubt. There was still the unknown intruder theory. There were fingerprints on the murder weapon that belonged to a mystery person. They didn't match Sarah, Bruno, Mel, Matt, the housekeeper, the Johnsons, or anyone else. So maybe this was someone who was not on the police radar 
who was the actual guilty party. I'm going to say we can sum up the defense case by saying no blood, no guilt, though they did do more than just that to dismantle the pieces of the prosecution's case. The trial lasted for five weeks, and on March 16, 2005, after 11 hours of deliberation, Sarah was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. On June 30th, she was sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. They added 15 more years for firearms charges, and she was given a fine. And Sarah, then 18, was sent to prison for the rest of her life. Though most, if not all, of her family advocated for this life sentence and pulled away from Sarah at this point due to her lack of remorse, someone did stand by her. Sarah's former daycare provider, Patricia Alder, who knew her from infancy, took guardianship over her after her arrest, and Pat's family became the family that Sarah needed. They would put money on her books, with Pat saying to the media, that even if Sarah did this, Diane and Alan would not want her to be locked up and forgotten. But she believed Sarah was innocent. The lack of remorse that others saw was actually a lack of guilt. And Pat isn't the only one who believes in Sarah's innocence. She has appealed with the help of the Idaho Innocence Project. I was honestly surprised to hear that an Innocence Project was involved because I personally do not see a lot of room for claims of innocence here. But I just might not be seeing things the same way they do through the same lens. Sarah's first appeal was dismissed because it was filed too late. There are two basic grounds to dismiss something. One is that your argument isn't legally sound or doesn't meet the legal requirements to get remedy. That's called substantive. The other is that you did something wrong in filing, like you filed in the wrong court. And that's called procedural. In this case, the court was saying they did it wrong. They filed too late. And I am not a fan of procedural dismissals of appeals unless it's a jurisdictional issue where they just filed it in the wrong court, and that can be fixed by filing it in the right place. Filing too late is so often punishing the defendant for something their attorney dropped the ball on. Because how many people convicted of a crime know the timetable for raising issues? So then they filed for post-conviction relief based on ineffective assistance of counsel, and one of the issues was not filing a timely direct appeal. They won this, allowing Sarah to finally file her appeal, which they could have just done in the beginning if they weren't holding her to this timetable. I know there are reasons for the timetable. I know they keep the courts moving efficiently, but also, come on. There should be a shortcut remedy to this that doesn't require them to start over with a new appeal. Anyway, in the time that this took to resolve this, there was an important development that occurred. They matched the prince on the gun. They matched a man named Christopher Hill. He was a friend of Mel Spiegel, the tenant, and he used to be a caretaker of Mel's ranch. 
Christopher did testify at an evidentiary hearing over this new evidence. He was asked why his prints were on the gun, and he said it's because he touched the gun. He had shot it before in at least the year 2000 that he could remember, which was three years before the murders, and he had possibly handled it when he helped Mel move into the garage apartment in 2002, which was a year before the murders. So Christopher did have some explanation of how his prints could have gotten on the gun other than being at the murder scene. But even if he didn't, the appellate team had another hurdle. They had to link Christopher to the murders in any way, shape, or form other than the fingerprints. And that was a tall order. For one thing, Christopher didn't know the Johnsons. They were his friends' landlords. That's it. He didn't have a motive. So what if Mel hired Christopher to kill them while he was out of town with this airtight alibi? Now you have to look at Mel, but he also didn't have a motive. He just rented the apartment over the garage. He wasn't on the verge of eviction. He didn't complain that the Johnsons were terrible landlords or terrible people. There was nothing like that. He had nothing to gain, whether we're talking money or revenge, from these murders. The only tiny sliver of a link was that Christopher and the disgruntled housekeeper who was brought up at trial lived in the same small community. Was this possibly a conspiracy between them? It seemed not very likely because it turned out they lived in that community at different times with no overlap. There was no evidence they even knew each other. Christopher's alibi for the time of the murder was that he was camping at Magic Reservoir, which is just south of Bellevue, not far from the crime scene, and Christopher didn't have proof for this alibi. This was so many years later. They have free camping at Magic Reservoir and no reservations, so it's not like he had a receipt he could have kept for years and years and years for some strange reason, and the campground couldn't look it up. There was just too much time that passed to either verify or contradict this alibi. And I have to say, I'm pretty sure this was the last time Christopher ever helped someone move. Could you even imagine? You help your friend move, which is terrible enough of a favor to have to do, and then a decade later, you're hauled into court to explain why your fingerprints are on a murder weapon. Can you even imagine? In the end, the court upheld the conviction. They said that even if this new evidence of the fingerprints was presented at trial, it wouldn't have given a different verdict. In fact, they said that knowing the fingerprints came from Christopher Hill actually weakened Sarah's case. Instead of a mysterious figure they could point at, the defense had a man who could give a reasonable explanation for his prints being on the gun. The nameless third party as an alternative suspect, which the jury heard, was actually a stronger case than Christopher Hill as the real culprit. Sarah did continue to appeal. She has asked for a sentence reduction based on being a minor at the time the crime was committed. The Supreme Court has ruled against mandatory life sentences being given to those under the age of 18. But Sarah's life sentence wasn't a mandatory automatic sentence. 
The real meat of that Supreme Court ruling is that the age of the offender needs to be taken into account when being sentenced. And the judge in Sarah's case explicitly considered her age as a mitigating factor. So this ruling, according to the Idaho Supreme Court, does not apply to this case. And the Supreme Court rulings on juvenile lifers recently have not been in the favor of the defendants. So Sarah has not found relief through her own filings or through other people's cases that have made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Sarah Johnson is now 34 years old. She is serving her time at the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center, which is in eastern Idaho. That is where she will likely remain for the rest of her life, unless the Idaho Innocence Project is successful in getting her a new trial or sentencing hearing or the U.S. Supreme Court starts seeing juvenile lifers in a different light. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.